Good morning and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We're a spiritual community dedicated to the free and responsible search for truth and meaning and to be in right relationship with one another, with ourselves and with the planet. We come from a long heritage of teaching that there's a spark of the divine in everyone. And it is in the spirit of that heritage that I say one of the ways that we greet the divine on a Sunday morning is by turning to the people around us and welcoming them here. Please say with me the words by which we light the chalice, which is the symbol of our faith. At this hour, in small towns and big cities, in single rooms and ornate sanctuaries, many of our sibling Unitarian Universalist congregations are also lighting a flaming chalice. As we light our chalice today, let us remember that we are part of a great community of faith. May this dancing flame inspire us to fill our lives with the Unitarian Universalist ideals of love, justice, and truth. Our call to worship this morning is by David White, a 64-year-old white English poet. Mr. White moved to the U.S. in 1981, after which he began a career as a poet and speaker. This poem is from his book titled, The House of Belonging. This is not the age of information. This is not the age of information. Forget the news and the radio and the blurred screen. This is a time of loaves and fishes. People are hungry and want one good word is bread for a thousand. This congregation wrote its own mission statement, and we use it in order to make our decisions as we move into the future together. We wrote it on the wall, and we say it together every Sunday. Together, we nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice to build the beloved community. If you want to know what we mean by beloved community, the definition from the Martin Luther King Jr. Center is on a poster in the fellowship hall where we have our coffee. Uh, I want to tell you briefly about a guy I interviewed. I used to go interview people who were strange to me in the small southern town where I lived for many years. And there was a group, uh, the Sons of the Confederacy, I think they were, And they would protest on a street corner every Saturday with their Confederate flags. And I went up to one of the guys and I just said, tell me what you're doing. And he said, "Um, everybody says white men have it so good. He said, look at my white skin and my blue eyes. You wouldn't take a nickel for them. I can't get anything. I can't get a job. I can't get anything. And... um, So I pondered that. And then I read a blog where the author compared living in our culture to playing a video game. And he said, it is possible for a person with white skin and blue eyes to lose this game. It's possible. 
Um, but they are playing it at the lowest level of difficulty. And if you are a, a woman, you're a white woman, you're playing it at a little bit higher level of difficulty. If you're uh, sick, is a higher level of difficulty. If you're a person of color, it's a little higher level of difficulty. If you're a woman of color, it's higher level of difficulty. If you're a, a woman of color with a disability, man, you're at the top. You're a player at the highest level of difficulty. And the thing about video games is you can pick your own level of difficulty, but that's not how it is in our life. You're, you're dealt your level of difficulty that you're playing with at any given moment. And so that's how he could lose the game. Um, but he was still uh, playing at a pretty low level of difficulty. Things to ponder. Our meditation reading this morning is by Rabbi Jesus. Then Jesus asked, What is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and grew and became a tree, and the birds perched in its branches. Again he asked, What shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Now is the time when we join together in an attitude of prayer and meditation where we can speak and listen to God as we understand God or listen to our inner wisdom or just watch our breath as it comes in and out of our bodies. It is in this still place that we might find clarity, feel ourselves rooted in the heart of compassion or held in the great arms of love. Let us enter into silence together, understanding that in this congregation, tiny noises from babies and the noises of life count as part of the silence.
in the Jewish faith story of the Exodus, the Hebrew people, descendants of Father Abraham and Mother Sarah, have been in Egypt enslaved for 400 years. A liberator arises named Moses, and he goes to the Pharaoh and says, let my people go. The Pharaoh is reluctant because his whole economy is based on this labor of these enslaved people. And then the plagues start. The water turns to blood and nobody can drink it. Frogs infest the land and then flies. Then all the cattle get sick. Then the people get boils. Then hail, then locusts. Then the skies turn so dark that you can't even see your hand in front of your face. Then the last plague is that the firstborn of all the animals and the people die overnight. The Pharaoh says, you may go. And the people are told to make unleavened bread, bread with no rising, no yeast. It's made out of salt and flour, olive oil, water. We have matzah bread now. You can buy it in the store to remind us of those times of having to be ready to flee the army. And you can live on unleavened bread for a little while. You can live on a mixture of flour and water for a little while. Um, Archaeologists think that prehistoric people would mix grain with water and have a little porridge, porridgey kind of thing that they could live on a little bit. But if you have time, if you put your grain and water, your flour and water mixture on a on a table somewhere and leave it, it's going to start to bubble. It's going to start to bubble because there's yeast in the air everywhere. Now, they, um, they don't know which was the first prehistoric person to say, I see a bubbling bowl of water and flour in the corner here. I'm going to bake it. <laughs> or I'm going to drink it. Anthropologists aren't sure. Some of them are bread before beer scientists, and some of them are beer before bread scientists. So if you don't have to flee an army that's going to come after you, and you can take a little time, then the wild yeast in the air is going to come into your flour and water mixture and start to bubble. And you can live on that after you bake it indefinitely. Why? Because the little yeasts are fungus, fungi that float in the biosphere. And they come into the flour water mixture and they eat the walls of the starch cells and make sugar. And let off carbon dioxide while they do that. So they're bubbles. And the bread has holes in it when you tear a loaf apart. You can see the holes, and that's the, the carbon dioxide that the yeast has belched <laughs> while it eats 
Bill read a pair of parables for our meditation reading. Parables attributed to Rabbi Jesus. Of course, we don't know what he said. We just know what they say he said. So if anybody says to you, but Jesus said, you can say in your mind, they say he said. Two parables, and he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of heaven, which we might translate beloved community? To what shall I compare the beloved community? It's like a tiny mustard seed that a gardener planted, and it grew into a big tree big enough so that the birds of the air could rest in its branches. And again, he said, what shall I compare the beloved community to? It's like, it's like a, a woman who had a, 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 some yeast, and she put it into 60 pounds of flour, until, and, it, and it worked its way through the whole mess of flour until everything was bubbling. So these parables say something big can start with something tiny. In fact, almost everything big starts with something tiny. I don't know if you've ever had um, someone say a word to you that changed your life. Some of us had a teacher maybe in sixth or seventh grade that said, wow, that drawing is good. You could be an artist. That's all it takes. Or, gosh, you can really sing. Or, wow, I love that story. You could be a writer. Or, you're really smart. One good word can feed a person for life. And the yeast is everywhere. I just heard this morning about a church sign that said, uh, come on in. God misses you. Come visit God. And it's like, uh-uh. <laughs> God is everywhere. And if you just stay still long enough, you might start to bubble. <laughs> Helping build a beloved community doesn't mean making giant sweeping gestures riding in like a prince on a pony and changing everything, overthrowing everything. I guess sometimes it would, but mostly you say a good word and and it starts to eat the cell walls of the starch and make sugar and make things edible and nourishing so that a person could live on it and it could transform your life. Yeast is everywhere. In the series uh, on Netflix called Cooked, botanist Michael Pollan um, goes through um, all the ancient elements. And in the element of air section, he talks about yeast. And you see this little boy um, in Morocco, and he, he takes the loaves that his mother has shaped that morning, and he takes them to the village baker because not everybody can have an oven in their house. And so everyone brings their stuff to be baked. They bring it to the baker. And the baker bakes everything. And Michael Pollan su suggests that when people started figuring out bread and beer, it gave them a reason to settle down. Because you can't be a nomadic people and plant a harvest, plant a crop and then harvest the crop. You've got to kind of stay near it. And so staying in one place is a very different life um, than being on the road 
all the time. Staying in one place means that you have to build a house that lasts longer than a few days. It means you have to defend your harvest in case somebody else who didn't plant it comes to harvest it. It means that when somebody dies, you have to have a place to bury people or a way to handle the bodies. You have to have some ceremonies. You have to have some rituals. Maybe religion is born that way. We don't know. But certainly as people settle instead of roaming, it changes life, human life. When you have beer and bread, you can have feasting and intoxication and civilization and conviviality and survival and community. And you can talk to each other and laugh together and live. And bread is often used as a metaphor for something you need every day, every day, every day. In Morocco, there's not enough flour for everybody to to bake their bread. So they have to import flour from all over the world. So the Moroccan bread might be made with flour from from Ukraine or flour from Germany or France all transformed and eaten. And um, in that part of the world, the bread is also the spoon. You put the food in the middle of the table and you scoop it with your bread or you, you scoop it onto another piece of bread that's your plate. And my mother grew up in Pakistan, what's now Pakistan, and she would, she would sit there um, washing dishes and grumbling She says, I can't believe in America you have to have a plate for everything, a plate and a bowl and a fork and a spoon. I mean, everything you have to have a plate for. If you just have your bread and use that for your spoon and use that for your plate, it's so much more civilized. And at the end of your meal, your plate is gone and nobody has to. (laughs) In her view, America was quite uncivilized. And when you make bread, when you knead bread and it rises, and then you push it down and it rises again, as you're kneading it, it feels almost human. It feels like a body. It feels like it could be part of you, or you could be part of it. So here's what I want you to remember. To help build a beloved community, we sprinkle our whole lives with small understandings, with small good words, with small investigations into the way things are, with small relationship-building questions to one another, with small acts of allyship, with small standing up for people who are powerless. You build beloved community like yeast, like a mustard seed. I told you two weeks ago about a seed that was planted in me when I was in seminary. All the women, except this one woman, but uh, never mind. Um, All the women started calling God she. And that seems like a tiny little thing, but man, it grew into a huge tree inside our spirits where the birds of our lived experience could nestle in the branches. And during another uh, learning session of some kind, the person suggested that we watch movies and TV and just reverse the genders. Uh, Back in those days, there were only two. 
Um, we didn't know how many there really were, which is a joy. But um, it's a joy now, I mean. Um, but reverse the genders. And boy, it really was eye-opening. Like, why is the man doing that? Why is the woman doing that? And then later on, we were asked to consider reversing the ethnicities of people on TV and uh, in the movies. There's a meme on Facebook that shows a group of white women doing pedicures for a group of women who look like they're from Asian heritage. It's just something you don't really see. Why not? Why are things the way they are? Are they hiding knowledge from us? Are we just floating along like sleepwalkers, trained to stay asleep and not notice things? The noticing is all around you. So as we started to call God, she, we started bubbling and then we started rising. As we started to switch the genders of the people in in the pictures and in the movies, um, things started bubbling and we started rising. As we switched ethnicities of people in the things that our culture spits out to us, we start bubbling and we start rising. You know Greta Thunberg when she was 13, uh, 14 or something. Anyway, uh, 18 months ago, August 2018, um, she sat by herself in front of the Swedish parliament with a sign about climate change. And now look at it. Everyone has started bubbling and all the young climate change activists have been yeast in their communities and suddenly the whole 60 pounds of flour of us are rising about climate change. People, ideas, songs can be like yeast. I read uh, an interview with a dictator, and they said, who are you most afraid of? And he said, the the folk singers. He said, first I'd get rid of all the folk singers, because those songs, people start singing those songs. It works their way into their spirit, and they start rising. The man who wrote uh, Cultural Creatives said that when 10% of a group is caring about something or talking about something, people kind of ignore them or mock them. It's like, you know, the fringe. And then when 20% of people start talking about the thing, when they're on the bus, the idea bus, people start noticing, and sometimes they even feel overtaken. Like, those people are everywhere. They're talking about it all the time. And then 30%, when 30% of the people are on the bus... It feels like a movement, and when 40% of the people are on the bus, everybody else kind of goes, oh, yeah, I've been on that bus forever. It started with me, actually. (laughs) You can see how a movement begins, um, if we keep our fingers crossed, in this video by Derek Sivers, who was a folk singer, and then he started putting other friends' CDs up on the web, and now he's... uh, just sold CD Baby for about $2 billion. Anyway, he's making videos now. First, of course, a leader needs the guts to stand alone and look ridiculous. But what he's doing is so simple, it's almost instructional. This is key. You must be easy to follow. Now, here comes the first follower with a crucial role. He publicly shows everyone else how to follow. Notice how the leader embraces him as an equal. 
So it's not about the leader anymore. It's about them, plural. Notice how he's calling to his friends to join in. So it takes guts to be a first follower. You stand out and you brave ridicule yourself. Being a first follower is an underappreciated form of leadership. The first follower transforms a lone nut into a leader. If the leader is the flint, the first follower is the spark that really makes the fire. Now here's the second follower. This is a turning point. It's proof the first has done well. Now it's not a lone nut, and it's not two nuts. Three is a crowd, and a crowd is news. A movement must be public. Make sure outsiders see more than just the leader. Everyone needs to see the followers, because new followers emulate followers, not the leader. Now here come two more people, then three more immediately. Now we've got momentum. This is the tipping point, and now we have a movement. As more people jump in, it's no longer risky. If they were on the fence before, there's no reason not to join in now. They won't stand out, they won't be ridiculed, and they will be part of the in-crowd if they hurry. And over the next minute, you'll see the rest who prefer to stay part of the crowd, because eventually they'd be ridiculed for not joining. And ladies and gentlemen, that is how a movement is made. So let's recap what we've learned. If you are a version of the shirtless dancing guy, all alone, remember the importance of nurturing your first few followers as equals, making everything clearly about the movement, not you. Be public, be easy to follow. But the biggest lesson here, did you catch it? Leadership is over-glorified. Yes, it started with the shirtless guy, and he'll get all the credit, but you saw what really happened. It was the first follower that transformed a lone nut into a leader. There's no movement without the first follower. See, we're told that we all need to be leaders, but that would be really ineffective. The best way to make a movement, if you really care, is to courageously follow and show others how to follow. When you find a lone nut doing something great, have the guts to be the first person to stand up and join in. The poet said, this is not the age of information. The people are hungry. We help one another rise. We follow a great nut. We say one good word and it becomes bread for a thousand. Please say with me the words by which we extinguish our chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment, these we hold in our hearts until we are together again. I know this rose will open. I know my fear will burn away. I know my soul will unfurl its wings. I know this rose will open. Go shining. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at austinuu.org.